bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Or perhaps I should call this Tax Reform Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, November 14th, 2017. As I did last week, I'll dispense with my usual This Week in History feature to jump right into our topic this week, the Senate Tax Reform Bill. After the House tax bill proposed eliminating several crucial tax credit programs, many of us hoped that the Senate bill would be more moderate in its approach to important tax incentives. I'll talk today about how the Senate bill compares to the House legislation, as well as next steps in the legislative process. If you're ready, let's get started. Before I dive into specifics, I do want to note that all of these details are current as of the time I'm recording this podcast, but the situation is very fluid. So be sure to subscribe to my Twitter feed at at Novogratik for up-to-the-minute details. I also encourage you to frequently visit our Tax Reform Resource Center. You can find it at cleverly www.taxreformresourcecenter.com. Now, I want to jump right into the main headline driving this week, the Finance Committee markup of the Senate version of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that was released last Thursday. As you'll recall from last week's podcast, we focused on the House tax bill and its potentially devastating effects on affordable housing, community development, and historic preservation. To recap the House legislation, the House bill retains the volume cap allocated low-income housing tax credits, that's 9% credits and 4% credit for acquisition. But on the flip side, the bill proposes to repeal the tax exemption for private activity bonds, including multifamily taxes and bonds, and the 4% credits that those bonds generate. The bill also proposes terminating the new market tax credit after 2017 and eliminating both the 10% non-historic rehabilitation tax credit for pre-1936 properties and the 20% historic credit after 2017. The House bill generally maintains the renewable energy tax credit's current five-year phase-downs, but it does end the permanent 10% credit for solar projects as of December 31st, 2027. The House bill also reverts the production tax credit from its current 2.4 cents back to its baseline number of 1.5 cents per kilowatt hour. On a somewhat positive note, though, Orphaned Renewable Energy Tax Credit Technologies are extended under the House bill using the ITC phase-down schedule. This would include fuel cells, combined heat and power, etc. The big question last week was how the Senate Finance Committee's version of the bill would be different. The short answer? The Senate bill is much better for affordable housing, community development, and stroke preservation, and renewable energy than the House bill. Big picture? The bill, the Senate bill, on a static scoring basis, adds about $1.4957 trillion to the national debt over the next decade. Senate rules say that only $1.5 trillion can be added to the national debt in that time period. I'll note, though, we are awaiting changes to the chairman's mark to make it compliant with the Byrd rule, which requires that the bill be revenue neutral in years 11 and beyond. More on that later. 
So let's begin with what is in the Senate bill. For starters, the Senate bill proposes lowering the corporate tax rate to 20%, similar to the House bill, but delays the reduction in the rate to January 1, 2019, as opposed to the more immediate January 1, 2018 effective date in the House bill. The Senate bill also limits interest expense deductibility to 30% of taxable income, including subjecting real estate businesses to the limit. However, there is an election for real estate to elect out of that limitation. The House bill also has a limit on interest expense deductibility, but real estate is excluded, no election needed. The Senate bill also provides for full expense for five years with real estate generally eligible. Under the House bill, real estate is not eligible for full expensing. Now it's currently unclear if under the Senate bill, a real estate business that elects out of the interest expense limitation could still claim full expensing. Also, speaking of real estate, the Senate bill shortens the depreciable life of real property to 25 years. Once again, there's a catch for real estate businesses. They could not use this shorter life if they elect out of the interest expense limitation rules. Under that circumstance, the depreciable life would be 40 years. So as you can hear, the effect of the Senate and House bills on localizing tax credit and other real estate businesses isn't entirely clear. We at Novogratic are continuing to assess, so do stay tuned. One of the challenges, though, in analyzing the Senate bill right now is we don't yet have legislative tax. One thing about localizing tax credit transactions, though, which is clear, as I mentioned regularly in this podcast, is that a lower corporate tax rate is detrimental to the value of long-income tax credit investments. A lower corporate tax rate reduces the value of the long-income tax credit because a lower tax rate reduces the value of tax losses. Affordable housing stakeholders have pushed for Congress to consider a two-step proposal to offset the effect of a lower corporate tax rate. The first step is to increase per capita allocations by 14.5%. The second step is to modernize the credit percentage formula so that all developments are financially feasible under a 20% corporate rate. Although the House and Senate bills do not currently include those offsets, we do expect them to be considered during the Senate Finance Committee markup. More on that later. And in another change, similar to the House bill, the Senate legislation proposes an alternate measure of inflation for tax brackets and other tax parameters. This alternative measure would replace the consumer price index inflation factor with a chained CPI factor. This would effectively reduce future low-income housing tax credit and private activity bond allocations a bit. On the individual front, like the House bill, the Senate bill would fully repeal state and local income tax deductions. However, the Senate bill goes a bit farther by also repealing the property tax deduction, where the House bill allows up to $10,000. The Senate bill would keep the mortgage interest deduction largely intact for mortgages up to $1 million, while the House version proposes capping the deduction to mortgages up to $500,000. And the Senate bill would also repeal the alternative minimum tax. So there you have some of the general corporate, business, and individual tax provisions. Now let's turn to affordable housing. Like the House bill, the Senate bill would preserve the 4% and 9% allocated low-income housing tax credits. But fortunately, differing from the House bill, the Senate version retains the tax exemption for private activity bonds, including multifamily taxes and bonds, and somewhat more significantly potentially, the 4% tax credits that those bonds generate. I can't emphasize enough how important multifamily taxes and bonds are to addressing the affordable housing shortage. It's estimated 
that multifamily tax bonds finance more than half of all local housing tax credit financed homes. And a study that we did, which you can find on our Notes from the Democratic blog, indicates that the loss of multifamily tax bonds would result in 700,000 fewer units of affordable housing being built or renovated over the next 10 years. You can find our national state estimates of the impact of the House bill on affordable housing production on my blog. I should note that when combined with a lower corporate tax rate and a change CPI adjustment, the loss of productivity bonds in the House bill would lead to the loss of nearly 1 million units of affordable housing over the next 10 years. Unfortunately, as I noted earlier, the Senate nor the House bill include provisions that could offset the damaging effect that a lower corporate tax rate would have on local housing tax credit investment and production. Turning to the community development and historic preservation front, the outlook with the Senate version is considerably brighter than the House bills. The House bill proposes repealing the new markets tax credit and historic rehabilitation tax credit after 2017. Those of us in community development and historic preservation were hoping that the Senate Finance Committee bill would be more moderate on the new market tax credit and historic tax credit. Fortunately, our hopes were realized. To our relief, the Senate bill retains the new market tax credit through 2019 when its current PATH Act authorization expires. And the historic tax credit is also retained, albeit drastically reduced. The current 20% historic tax credit would be retained, but reduced to 10%, cut in half. Meanwhile, the current non-historic 10% rehab credit would be repealed. Now, we do expect the Senate Finance Committee to consider returning to a 20% historic tax credit this week, albeit if if they're successful in passing this amendment, the credit would be claimed over five years instead of 100% on placement and service. Now, the Senate bill would maintain the current five-year phase-down scheduled for renewable energy tax credit, both the investment tax credit and production tax credit, However, the Senate bill does not adopt the inflation adjustment or continuous construction requirement changes included in the House bill. Furthermore, the Senate bill does not extend orphan renewable energy tax credit technologies, unfortunately, at the current law investment tax credit phase-down schedule, which is in the House bill, as I noted earlier. Overall, I'd say the Senate tax bill isn't perfect, but it's certainly a better starting point than the House bill. As for the next steps, the Senate Finance Committee will continue to mark up the bill this week. Also, I expect the Senate Energy Committee to consider a bill to open up the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil drilling this week. If the Finance and Energy Committee approve their respective bills, then the Senate Budget Committee would combine the drilling bill and the tax bill into one reconciliation bill for the full Senate to consider. Now remember, Republicans only have a narrow 52-seat majority, meaning they don't have a filibuster-proof majority. If Senate Republicans want to pass a tax bill without Democratic support, they'll have to use reconciliation rules to be able to pass it with a simple majority. As I noted earlier, reconciliation places certain restrictions on a bill. For example, the so-called Byrd Rule does not allow reconciliation legislation to add to the deficit beyond the 10-year budget window. So, certain corporate tax cuts and many individual tax cuts could be made temporary. Or there could be some sort of trigger mechanism that reduces certain tax cuts under certain circumstances. As far as timing goes, number two Senate Republican John Cornyn said a full Senate vote on the tax plan will likely be pushed until after Thanksgiving. Meanwhile, the House Ways and Means Committee reported its own bill to the full House 
on Thursday along a party line vote of 24 to 16 out of committee. House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy said the full House would vote on the bill this week. Now also keep in mind, the deadline to keep the government funded is December 8th. So what are the odds of enacting tax reform? The betting website, Predict It, currently pegs the chances of a corporate tax cut by the end of 2017, passing Congress, at about 19%. I personally think the odds are slightly higher, just because the stakes are too high for Republicans to fail. Republicans haven't been able to notch a victory in health care reform, and adding tax reform to the loss column would be devastating to the party, especially considering the midterm elections in 2018. Based on that, I do think the most likely scenario is that some sort of, the tax, of a tax bill will be passed, but maybe not before the end of 2017, maybe in early 2018. One thing I do know for sure is that those of us at Novograd and Company will be monitoring tax reform very closely. And we'll continue to send out tweets, have our podcasts, and have postings at the Tax Reform Resource Center with the latest. As I noted earlier, go to www.taxreformresourcecenter.com for the latest versions of the various tax bills, the revenue estimates, and any other relevant documents. We're adding documents to the website on an hourly basis. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I'll continue to report on tax reform news in upcoming podcasts. If you have any questions about tax reform that you'd like answered on the podcast, please email me, cpas at novico.com, and put podcast question in the subject line. That's it for now. Until next week, follow me on Twitter. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.